0: is
1: Ireland, the Forest of Dean. The last half of the 20th century was a time of massive change in the Forest of Dean. A woodland landscape littered with collieries, railways and foundries became a place of shiny new factories, cycleways and visitor attractions.
2: Did this bring with it new attitudes and new ways of living?
1: In this series, we're hearing local people describe how their working lives, families and social life adapted to the transformations of the last half of the 20th century here in the Forest of Dean. This is the Voices from the Forest podcast.
0: The first thing that a forester asks of you is that you should say how beautiful the place is, no matter what time of year. You would not find it difficult to meet this request, nor would you be immediately prepared to disagree with the claim that it is a little country on its own. I know a few more fascinating areas and entering the Forest of Dean by whichever route you choose, you can soon sense that you are in a self-absorbed community where the interrelation of landscape, work and the different generations demands more than the usual flickering attention.
2: By the early 1960s when Dennis Potter made this observation the practices of sheep commoning, free mining, salmon and elver fishing were, like panaging in the pig in the cot at the bottom of the garden, in decline. They had been part and parcel of forest life for over 1,000 years. They were suddenly threatened as forest dwellers found a degree of economic certainty working in factories. There was a living wage and a welfare state. People also wanted more leisure time and the Forestry Commission was becoming more assertive about managing the forest in ways not conducive to the old ways. Forestry and the way it was managed was beginning to radically change in the 1960s. Cheap imported timber, the decline of the market for pit props, and conservation and tourism taking precedence were all impacting on forestry management. In this episode, This Land Is Our Land, we will be looking And how these traditional practices fared in the years after the Second World War. The Forestry Commission had been created after the First World War, modeled on the colonial civil service and led by Lord Robertson of Kielder and Adelaide. Its mission then, as it was after the Second World War, was to replenish forests devastated by war. Huge quantities of timber had been needed for the war effort. Forest workers were traditionally local laborers, but foresters were well-educated at forestry school and moved around the nation's forests. Steve Cooper, born in Yorkshire, after graduating, went to work in the research and planning department that involved traveling around the country,
3: measuring growth rates of particular tree species. Research center, I was only there for a couple of months or so, and then uh, one of the lads who was working out in North Wales, he, he left the forest commission and said, right, you can go there. You're young enough, you can climb trees. <laughs> so then, that's when I went into work into Wales, measuring sample plots. And eventually, as, as changes came along, uh, we, we didn't become research. We were left, taken out of the research branch because there's a new branch called Planning and Economics branch. And uh, we became part of that. So on top of the sample plot work we did, we also started to produce working plans for different forests. So each forest would eventually have a working plan. That would involve mapping the forest out, mapping the species, calculating the areas, and then they could produce a working plan for that forest when trees would be felled, when they would be thinned, when they would be replanted.
2: Steve eventually settled in the Dean and explains how the forest beats were
3: organised. I couldn't carry on. I was already I'd married by then and I couldn't see a lot of future in travelling about the countryside living in digs when I was married so I was actually posted then to a beat in the Forester Dean which was Edge Hill's beat. In those days the Forester Dean was, and that comes, I think that perhaps goes back to the old Crown Woodland days, it was a beat which was an area of forest which was usually run by a forester and an assistant forester. Eventually they changed the greys' names and they, be, they become head forester and forester but it was basically the same thing. So my head forester, Charlie Russell, uh, he would would delegate tasks to me and I would be the respondent for supervising the industrial labour that we had, both in clearing some of the woodland, restocking,
2: fencing, that sort of stuff. Another young man who came to the forest in the 1950s was Bart Venner, and he too encountered the beat system and began work with foresters Jack Freeman and Jack Lee.
4: I was their assistant they were foresters, foresters and I was an assistant forester and when uh, I first went to the Dean there were 13 divisions in the Dean with a forester in charge of each. So you had one bloke in charge of the land that stretched from Parkend to Lydney. It's mm. not a very big, big patch and that was Mike Dunn. Um, whereas Ian Faulner's patch stretching from Chepstow right the way round to Lidbrook, was a long thin piece of woodland. But Ian was a very canny forester. He, would, um, he liked horses, so he rode the horses and he used to ride out at weekends to see what we'd been doing in the forest. So he could tell us on Monday morning whether we got it right or not.
5: Because <laughs> he was a Scotsman, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah.
4: When I was on at Soodley, I had, we had 12, uh, 13 workers. And Blakeney Hill, which is the other side of the Soodley Valley, had another 13 workers. Um, when I got to Centrebeat in '59, we had 15 of our own men. When I got on to High Meadow, as it is, from Lidbrook, Lidbrook to um, Chepstow. They had different groups in different villages, running down the high valley, so you never really
2: knew who was what and from where. There were once over 800 men and women employed in forestry in the Forest of Dean. Steve and Stephen Bart, coming from outside the forest, encountered an unfamiliar culture that was very tight and over whom they had managerial responsibility. I asked Steve what the challenges were. There were, there
3: were a number of things in many ways. I, I must admit that I didn't relish the idea of supervising labour. It was something I was never that comfortable with. but. Certainly, in the forest, where I worked in the north part of the Forest of Dean, there were some really very good lads that worked there, who didn't really want a lot of supervision. They knew what they were doing, and they were good at what they were doing. So that that was a bonus, that really. So that that was, that was quite good in that respect. For
2: Bart Venner, the interrelationship of workers proved a challenge. I remember the first time I went,
4: when well, I was first in Sudley. I spoke to the forest clerk because. Pat Reynolds, as was then. She was the clerk to both us in Sudley and to the people in Blakeney Hill. And I said to Pat Pat one morning, Pat, just get the the timesheets out, will you? She said, yeah, why? I said, now tell me who's related to who. Because I hadn't the foggiest idea. I mean, they are all interrelated in those two villages without any shadow of doubt. And uh, the one fellow went there one day and it was raining. So when it was wet time, you stood around and got into the, into the, uh, into the wet shed. And one fellow said to me, do you mind me saying something to you? Uh, I, boss, I think he called me. I said, no, what is it? He said, you talked about that fellow there, the mind, thicks my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> I remember his words yeah, to this day, th- 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 the mind, thicks my uncle. I hadn't been actually castigating this guy, but he was a war invalid from the First World War. I think he was deaf in one ear, totally deaf, and walked with a limp. So, uh, yeah, he mind thinks my uncle. Uh, I stepped back and thought, mm, I better I went to
2: see Pat and said, "Tell me who's related to him and why." Important factors in the management of the woodland were technology and changing demand for types of timber. The industrial revolution had already seen the demise of one forest traditional occupation, charcoal burning. The practice was verging on extinction when Pete Ralph, a forester working for the commission, determined to retain the knowledge and skills so they could be passed on to future generations. The charcoal had been produced for almost a thousand years as fuel for foundries and homes, but had been eclipsed by coal. I went to Dean Heritage Centre to meet Clayton Ryder, a descendant of those ancient burners who conducts an annual burn.
1: In terms of your background, where did you learn how to charcoal burn? Where did you get trained? I learned through the Dean Heritage Centre. It's been happening on site here for for the last 30 odd years. It was something that a guy called Peter Ralph started, who used to work for the Forestry Commission. Um, he started doing it over 30 years ago. So, um, as far as nationally concerned, you know, Pete's probably one of the best uh, at this sort of thing. Um, within the country in a traditional way there are one or two other guys that know what they're doing with the traditional side but Pete's been doing it here for 30 odd years So,
6: well, where did he learn, where
2: did he get his um, skills from
1: it's, it's kind of a passed on thing with, with Pete and a, a bit of an experimentation because that sort of died out a number of years ago the, the traditional earth and turf burn Yeah. so it's been revived as much as um, a hand down if you like, the information's out there if you know where to look but um, you know Some of us have got family links within this sort of thing as well. And um, that's how it's come about, really. Do you have any family, which family members of yours were involved in charcoal Um, we You're going back a long, long time. Um, For instance, in the Forest of Dean, around about the 12th, 13th century, talking about 900 charcoal burners just within the Forest of Dean. All of us who have been in the Forest of Dean for a long time are pretty much related to at least one of them. So if you wanted to trace it back that way, you could. The last charcoal burner in the Dean was a guy called Roberts, who was down around Gunsmills. Gunsmills belonged to my family at that sort of time. Um, so we've got links with with charcoal on that on that side of things. Well. Yeah, Gunsmills was my 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 grandfather was born there. Um, he married a girl who just lived up the way. He was related to the Teagues. The Teagues were known as an industrial family and they bought the tramways to the Forest Dean and stuff like that. So my links from my side of the family run right through the history of Forest Dean.
2: Clayton went on to explain the process of building a charcoal burning site using the traditional approach
1: yeah, we'll, we'll cut cords of wood, they'll be about eight, nine feet length. We'll bring them onto site. We'll cut them then into 18 inch to two foot lengths. They'll all be taken up to the charcoal burn site. They'll be, um, sometimes they're barn dried, sometimes they're just air dried. But once they're dried, then we can use them and get a better product with it. We can't use anything that's wet or anything like that, or green. Um, two tonne of burn, when we hope to get around about a quarter of a tonne of charcoal out of that. Um, The preparation is everything goes up, um, we'll build the chimney, then we'll build uh, around it in concentric circles around that chimney till all the wood is used and it's dome shaped because obviously you've got to dress that with with turf after it's built. And if it's too steep on either side the turf, will just fall away. You'll end up getting air getting into the stack and it'll just burn away. So it's got to be the correct shape. Once the correct shape's built, we cover it with sections of turf. Once that turf is covered over, then we get some earth, tip that on the turf, seals all the gaps. Get a good fire going in the hearth next to it, put a lot of hot ash down, down the middle of the chimney, which is still exposed. Pack that out with dry wood. Once the flames start to lick out the top, usually takes three quarters of an hour to an hour. We know that the, the, the stack is lit. The clamp, as they call it, is lit. Once that's happened, we seal the top off, so there's no air getting to it. And then we punch your load of holes about a foot from the top, all the way around the top of the stack. The colour of the smoke that comes out of those holes tells us what's going on inside the stack. It comes out um, white smoky stuff to start with which is quite toxic, you can't breathe and stuff like that. As time goes on eventually you'll get a bluey smoke coming from there, then you know you've got carbon in there and you've got charcoal. Once that happens you seal those holes off and lower them down by another foot and the same process goes on again from those holes because as the stack gets nearer to the bottom it gets wider so you've got more wood to turn to charcoal. Once that happens and you get all the way to the bottom, the last set of holes turn to blue, you know that the stack is cooked. Then you can seal it all off. We pump. We tend to pump a load of water in there just to put the worst of the fire out and let the steam do the work then to stop any um, flare-ups or anything like that. Seal it off with any spare turf and earth that we've got and opening it up the following day. And hopefully we end up with about a quarter of a ton of charcoal. Darphin finishes anything from sort of two days to, to five days, depending on um, how... Um, dry the wood is when we put it in and all that sort of stuff, and the, particularly the, the type of wood we put in. But the, the, the smell itself is unique. You know a charcoal burn once you smell it, and it's something, it's it's um, yeah, It's literally, it, it is a unique thing, and it's a, a very nice thing, you know. You can actually sit in amongst the charcoal smoke and, and it won't bother you at all.
2: Joining one of the Dean Heritage Centre burns to enjoy the experience and the smell of burning wood in the forest is highly recommended. Following the second world war there was a revolution in technology that changed the way forestry was practiced. The chainsaw replaced the axe and the arrival of tractors altered the forest landscape and made the horse redundant. Tushing, the dragging of trees out of the woodland had traditionally been performed by horses. There were many small family firms that made a living this way. Alan Price's father had one such enterprise that his sons took over. But in terms of his work in life with horses, how many years did that go on for? When did he sort of retire? When did he retire from it?
7: Uh, well, in, 19, in 1956, well, he died in 1956. Yeah. Uh, about 62. Um, and then my, I've got a brother, and he was working on a farm away. And uh, when my father died, he, he came home, and um, carried on with his timber timber trade. You no know, timber hauling, but uh, uh, the timber it was, it was always very spasmodic. You know, uh, just after the war, you know, some years, you know, there'd be a lot of uh, work and then the other years another you know, wouldn't be so much and that why they they never used to do much um, timber fell in, in the summer then yeah. and, uh, they'd be planting planting trees in the summer and felling them in the winter yeah so the uh, there, there there wasn't wasn't a, a, a regular trade with the for the horses and uh, so my brother why well, he, he he had to go he he came home to and did so many months with the horses you know haul hauling the timber then he had to get a job um up uh, well, up in Gloucester uh because there wasn't enough work with the horses then uh after a few a few months it picked up again yeah had work and um then by about 1959 there was uh, more work and um, in the me- meantime I was working in Gloucester and um, my brother wanted me to come home and help him out, because he had so much work then. But, and, uh, and then we, well we didn't look back then, what, well for, for about three months we had plenty of work and then, then it came to summer and there was no, no work again. And uh, anyhow, we just managed to keep going, and because um, we used to just do work locally with, with the horses, but um, we, we found ever some uh, quite a lot of work over to them. There was an old man who worked horses over there, and he was what well, he was getting on for eighty, and was giving up uh, work with the horses, and they wanted us to go out. Out to Tiddenham Chase. I mean, we had plenty, from then on, we had uh, sort of plenty of work with horses from, that was from about 1960 to 68. But by about 1968, I think uh, nearly all the horses were were phased out of the Forest of Dean, you know, and and the tractors took over. And, uh, well, well, we uh, used tractors as well.
2: The hauliers using horses had used them for coal haulage and farm work. The horses developed an innate sense of what was required and didn't require the normal aids or signals, but were led by noise and the voice. So they're different temperaments, your horses?
7: Oh, uh, yes, yeah, yes. Uh, some are, some. Are, you'd get some horses very quiet. You, you'd ha- you'd got, have a job to get them to move. You no, know, they would, wouldn't move, but others would, like we had Violet, um, we a violent she would know when to move on. If he, if you were well, sort of collecting hay out in the fields, once you got le- level with her collecting hay, she'd move on to uh, no. So you could collect up some, some more, yeah. and then, then every saw so she'd take off and she'd run with it. you used to collect it on a sledge. Mm-hmm. And she'd run off and go to the hayrick, and then stop at the hayrick.
6: <laughs> so, so, did the, when you were working the horses, how would you command them? Would they would they react to the voice, or would you?
7: Oh uh, yeah 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 uh, yeah. If you got got a good one, they'd re- react to the, oh. the voice. Yeah yeah. That'll start.
6: So you just give them a, a ticking noise.
2: Or whoa to,
7: whoa yeah, or to start.
6: Yeah. So that's how they know to go forward or to stop?
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Did you use reins at all to, to, as well, or did you just use those calls?
7: No, yeah, you, 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 mostly the calls, yeah, yeah. I didn't use the reins very often in, in the woods No, no. Uh, I, I remember with a water horse, it was a bit wild, I had to use the reins, but it wasn't very, well, not very safe, yeah. uh, in amongst the trees, you, you know.
2: So generally yeah. they just do what you said, they'd follow your voice call. The decline of horses working on the land and used for transport was paralleled by the growth of motor transport after the Second World War. Fewer than 5% of forest households had motor cars after the Second World War, but within 25 years, more than half the homes had vehicles. As tracks traditionally used by walkers and horses became metalled roads, more and more cars were hurtling around the forest. The growth of motor transport would also lead to some of the forest's oldest oaks being felled to serve motorway development. An irony today, Bart Venner explains. What happened was um, all the oaks, well, most of the oaks have
4: been planted after the uh, war with France in 1810. And uh, most of them had matured to a point where they were able to be used. And all the oak in the centre part of the forest was cut down and used to fence the motorway the M4. Every piece of wood going up the M4 came out of the Dean. Hundreds and hundreds of tons. We used to get half a crown a cube, cubic measure, which in theory was not its value, but that's all the timber merchants were prepared to give us for it and they came in and felled all the oak and uh, saw it up and turned it into fencing. It was replanted then with, in some places with oak, but a lot of places with conifer. If you go to a new fancy colliery and stand up on top of the tip and look out across there to the left and centre towards Cinderford, That's where we had to plant all these conifer in 1966 after the severe winter of 65. And that's where 250,000 spruce went in. And they grew very quickly so a lot of those have been felled since and replanted again with spruce or whatever. We did plant some large there to cause some fire breaks so that if there was a fire, large trees would quell the flames a bit because they were Different texture, you didn't have the, the conifer
2: that would crackle and burn like mad. Increased motor traffic would have repercussions for traditional commoning practices, and foresters such as Steve Cooper would have to resolve the problems, often not to the public satisfaction.
3: Yeah, Jack Barrington used to use it at, at, at Flaxley. He used to run a few pigs out. I remember one incident where a friend of one of the foresters who worked at Xerox, at Rank Xerox, hit one of the pigs on the road at Flaxley, and killed the pig and damaged his car. And so he tried to get the owner of the pig to pay for the damage on his car. Unfortunately, he didn't realise the law that in actual fact he had to pay for the pig. So that didn't go down very well, but it was a fact that that's what and, and you, People needed to drive steadily when the pigs were out when they, uh, on the acorns. You don't want to hit a pig because people have found to their cost with a wild boar now when they hit one of those fairly extensive damage to your vehicle and perhaps not, not much damage to the put to the pig. This collision came at what was really the tail end of
2: the days when everyone kept a domestic pig. The decline of the domestic pig and the pig cot was as remarkable as the decline in chapel worship. As part of their domestic management, pigs would be turned out for three months to eat acorns and beech nuts, to panage in the woodland. George Hogg observes, everyone had a pig and remembers how colliery barrels were used to collect pig food.
8: Well, everyone had a pig and um, a lot of stuff was used in the forest, same as they used to have big tubs. Now the fancy I used to have their greasing great big barrels Barrels, wooden barrels, and you knock one end out and you get the grease out. And this grease had to lubricate the tram wheels, you know, the mine car wheels. And um, the, the miners would have the air them from there, because they have them from there for a, oh, a few pence. What did he say? So he said, burn them out. Right? Burn them out. Burn them all out. Get, to get them clean what? Right, and when the new bracken was coming up, the bracken's squirrels, you know, all that sort of thing. Young new nettles, that all went in there, all went in there to the most folky, it down, pressing it down, pressing it down. And that was part of the pig's diet. Yes, 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 out of the forest. Of course, and the pig was different to what it is now. The forest was mainly a lot, a lot of oak, a pig would go out on the acorns, look. Yeah. Get his own food. So my dad had, I don't know how many pigs come back with. Uh, I don't know how many little pigs have been melting somewhere in the back, and it? All of a sudden, this pig will come up. Well, about half a dozen little pigs running behind it. Yeah, and then nobody knew. No. Yeah. No.
6: So your dad had a lot of pigs that he turned out in the forest? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
8: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we always had bacon on the wall and that, and we had sheep as well, yeah, sheep. We had about 500 sheep cheaper at one time.
2: For a forest family, the pig cot was the most important part of the household, and if you had a pig, you needed someone to slaughter it. Fred Thomas remembers a household name and character in the West Dean, Charlie Smith.
9: Charlie Smith was the local mobile butcher. He just, oh, when do you want it killed? Oh, Saturday morning. Right on. What time? Oh, eight o'clock. Right on. And uh, he'd walk from the sled to wherever, wherever it, had to, it had to be, you know, like. And then it would be the straw put on the floor and the pig would be brought out and, and killed on the floor and then set fire to burn the air off. And um, then it'd be carried in and hung up over, overnight. He'd come back the next day and cut it up in joints and what have you. He'd break people's hearts when he'd go there. It was like like a baby of the family, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I I don't, I can't explain that. But uh, and then they were only too pleased after he'd gone, because because he'd he'd left them with the joints and what have you. I can remember all that being done for me, for my grandfather, my father, my uncles. Well, everybody used to have one every year, you know. Like, mean. In them days, the pig's cot was the most important part of the the building sort of thing. When I bought this, there was the cot down the back there. It was a bit dilapidated, mind, but uh, it was there.
2: Kelvin Jones from Furnace Bottom Blakely reflects on the family tradition of commoning and recalls working with his father at Collier and learning the risks of managing pigs.
10: We had pigs here. <laughs> We had cattle, horses. My grandfather had the sheep, which I carried on with. Great-grandfather Turley had the goats. Going back, that's in eighteen eighty-nine and all that year, and early nineteenth century. Grandfather Jones used to have all loads of pigs on Lake near. He used he used to do homes, own slaughter and all. So, uh, so
2: you you sort of learn what you knew from them, so you picked up all your... Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. did you look after your stock on your own or did you do that with anybody else, with your dad or...?
10: When, when we had the pigs, I looked after them with Dad. He knew the dangers of what they were like. Until you have a sow, chase you round the cot, yeah. you don't know what they're like. Because one minute there is quiet a biddy and then you get in the litter what we call a squealer for some reason and all he wants to do is squeak, squeak, squeak but if it gets one side of the cot, so's the other side and even if we've got our own little pigs in the middle she will scabble her own pigs to get to the one that is squeaking because they think it's being hurt you know I know it's cruel but the old men when one was born they used to knock it in the head it was safer to knock that one in the head than lose the litter.
2: Calvin grew up with a view that grazing the forest was an entitlement. In his kitchen, with his dog, giving me an occasional growl, he told me how many pigs he had and where their food came from outside the panaging season.
10: Seven sows, one boar, and two gilts coming behind. Two gilts is a young female yeah. And how
6: did you, what did you feed uh, them on?
10: Yeah. We used to go kelping, kelping.
11: Yeah. We used
10: to go down the Severn every Sunday, well, mum was doing the dinner and we used to pick the seaweed and we used to bring it home and boil it. Plus we'd go, daddy, go around the farms and when they lifted the potatoes you always get what they call the dead potatoes in the field, what they don't pick up. And we used to spend hours just walking up down the rows, picking up the potatoes, bring them home and boil them up. And then we'd use a, a mixture of sowing wiener feed and mix it in all together. And that was a job that had to be boiled every day but wasn't going out to play, I had to come home, boil up. And what I boiled up that night was to feed the pigs the next day. And yeah. if Dad had chance, Dad would do the same. But Monday morning, see, I didn't used to get to school very regularly, see. I yeah. it was in market. Oh yes, in the market yeah. most Mondays. Yeah, see how the prices was going. Probably which, a, which market did you go We to? went to Gloucester.
6: The interesting bit of that is the seaweed. So where did you go to get that?
10: Down at, at the pier. Where yeah. the old Severn Bridge used to be, we used to walk down the pier and you go so, so far across, we got to know where you got it you can walk. We'd done it for years. My dad had done my dad done it virtually all the time with his dad. We got down there one day and a friend came down with us Of course they decided they were going to have a bit of backer sat on the rock and when you're halfway up in the, the channel yeah. picking the seaweed and it was lovely and quiet and we was all sat there relaxing and then suddenly Dad looked round. And we come across. I was carried across because I wasn't quite tall enough, mate. Where well, the water come behind us, and that was when we stopped, Calvin. But it was only because they decided to stop and have a bit of acker. If we'd have done what we normally done, we used to pick about twelve banks. Fat pigs, up lovely that would. As they said, this is things where it would passed down through the generation. My grandfather Jones used to go down and do it. His dad before that. They they all knew where to go.
2: Calvin explained some of the restrictions that were monitored by the Forestry Commission. He also explained how most commoners fetch their stock in at night. I began by asking him when he turned the pigs out.
10: Around no, isn't it? It's October time. Yeah, uh, But we weren't allowed to let male species out. The male wasn't allowed to go out. All pigs that went out, including little ones, had to be rung. Had to put three, three rings in their nose, because they couldn't do... Either side or straight.
6: So they had to be ringed?
2: They had
10: to have rings in their nose. If they didn't have rings on their nose, the far she was round and you was in trouble. That was the rule.
6: And I mean, I can understand how you have to sheep, but how do you stop a pig disappearing?
10: They don't. They don't. They don't really disappear. Yeah. Because you you let them out in the daytime. Uh, Common and done correctly is you let them out in the daytime. In the evening, you call them back in. So you always know where your stock is.
2: Calvin and Carol Jones explained how Calvin's father would work with other commoners to ensure the safety of animals, and how this esprit de corps had helped the formation of the commoners association many years before. They also explained how in the 1940s, Calvin's father common cattle along the Backpool brook from Blakeney to Mallard's Pike. The highland cattle introduced today on sites to the forest are an extension of an old tradition.
10: Prior to that, we had cattle, that used to run all the way from out from here, all the way up to Sutton Green. Now, this is where a lot of your commoning come in. It was like a little group of blokes got together that was like a telephone line yeah. to tell people where if you've got something missing, your animals are. And then the commoners grew out of that. Yeah. You know, um, I can't think of their four their names, but Mick Holder's brother was one of them. He used to tell our dad, hey Rush, your cattle's up here. I bought them down to the back end of the pit. Well then Dad would bring them on home. Get
12: on his horse and ride up uh, or ride
10: up and bring them back so, on the horse. So your dad kept a horse did he? Oh yeah, the horse kept horses,
6: yeah. And your dad your dad was you would use the horse for commoning, would he? Yes, yeah. So yeah. These are your dad's cattle. Yeah, my dad's cattle, yeah. Okay, so what sort of cattle were they? Um Erreford's. Yeah. And what did he do then? Was that for beef or milk? Oh, or yeah, they went on for beef, yeah. yeah.
7: yeah. Yeah.
6: So he'd run them out, he'd literally he'd run them run out, them out, out in the forest? out in
9: the
10: forest, yeah.
6: And, and what year was that? When did he...
10: That was about nineteen. 1948, right. uh, 1947, 1948, 1949.
2: And yeah. he'd
6: run them up um, Blackpool that
2: way? Oh,
10: that's from Blackpool, Brock.
2: As the forest changed, so did government and some of the public's attitude towards the traditions of the forest. Modernisation was the theme in the early 1970s and a clean, tidy forest was part of a new future.
0: In the late 1960s, the rural district councils, east and west, were under increased public pressure to deal with sheep enroachment in the towns and collisions between sheep and vehicles. By the 1960s, road traffic accident fatalities were at a peak in the UK and in 1970 there were 78 accidents, five with people severely injured involving sheep in the Dean. The sheep were perceived as the problem rather than speed. The Forest MP Charles Loughlin had been determined to bring change since 1961 and he brought forward a petition to Anthony Stoddard, the Minister of Agriculture under the Heath government, from 1970 to 74. Stoddart was working to tidy up Britain's agricultural policy as part of the planned accession to the European Union, but nevertheless, he placed the creation of a new Forest of Dean Act high on civil servants' agenda to be brought to Parliament. Because the forest was not a common, but a royal forest, legislators argued in files marked secret that commoning should be abolished. The Commoners Stood Alone. The petitioners Cyril Hart, Head Verderer, the East and West Dean Councils anticipated the act as regulating commoning, but a scrutiny of the files marked secret in the National Archives show its intent was to end commoning practice. The deputy surveyor role was combined with the role of Conservator for the South West, and Jeff Rouse, successor to Sanson Baker, was unsympathetic to the traditions of the Dean. The files reveal the machinations of civil servants and politicians as they progressed an act of Parliament to rid the forest of all grazing livestock. Rouse, the Conservator and Deputy Surveyor, wrote to a London civil servant regarding the Verderers having extra powers to manage the sheep and his view of Dean sheep commoners. He wrote, The Verderers are almost dead from their own inanition. We can hardly say so publicly but it is our policy to let them fade away completely. The last thing we want to do is reconstitute them. And in another paragraph, you must accept as a fact my statement that a high proportion of the commoners are a set of unprincipled rogues. Arthur Deverell, Private Secretary to the Minister, 6th of October 1972, wrote, The bill provides for the appointed day, when the sheep would be removed from the forest, in addition to sheep, there are other animals, and Mr Rouse recommends a clean sweep. The other animals which cause any concern are pigs. There are only about a dozen owners involved, and they would be licensed for their lifetime, but no new licenses would be granted. Finally, there was a suggestion that the post of Deputy gaveller might be abolished. Things were set to change, but were they?
2: The free miners and commoners associations had become important bastions in engaging the Forestry Commission, Ministry of Agriculture and Government in defending the heritage of free mining and commoning in the forest. As many of the colliers finished at the NCB mines, such as Northern United, they transitioned into free mining through the Free Miners Association.
11: My uncle was Mr. O. B. Jordan, my uncle, He's a well known member of the Free Miners Association and when Northern was coming to an end he said to me, you want to register. He said, I'll take you in and I'll register you. So that's what we done. We went into Colford and he was with me and I registered as a free miner. I had a letter which I was got from Northern off the mantra at the time, Mr Arnold. This is, uh, more or less to say that, um, to anybody, that I had done a year and a day in the pit. Then I registered then, which I received a certificate with my name and address on there and the dates. And it was signed by a one old man, by Mr. R. Tallis the Gabbler. That's just the main two documents for a free miner, in my opinion. Charlie Penn also
2: became a member of the Free Miners Association and... He was at the same time a member of the commoners association.
5: I oh, had a chance to join it, so I went and joined it. Crown we uh, that's where we used to have our meetings, Crown that's where we used to have our meetings, free miners.
6: So you used to go there to have your meetings? Yeah. And who was the secretary
5: then? Oh, you can't remember him.
2: Yeah.
5: Can't remember
2: Charlie worked in several free mines, but the foreigners were not done with the forest. And in the 1970s, the open-cast developments began and brought one of his mines to an
6: end. So how long did you work the free mine for before you sold it? Well,
5: three or four years. What sort of seams were there? At good seams there, four foot, six foot. Okay. And then we went down and turned left to go for the second way out. We knocked we knocked, um, we knocked, knocked 14 foot coal. And when we, uh, as a matter of fact, we said... I can't remember the name of the firm, but we sold it to a. I done an open cast, yeah. Turned it to open cast.
6: So when you sold the free mine, they turned the whole place yes.
5: into an open cast. Oh,
6: yes. Oh, well, there must have been some coal oh, there. Oh, yeah, I see.
5: Yeah.
2: Yeah. The old colliers did not just work the land they owned, but also looked to the river, an integral part of forest life, to provide food and income. It was often the same men who had sheep that also worked on the river. Henry Mills laments the passing of fishing down on the Severn. Salmon fishing,
13: down in Morse on the stoppers. Go up top of the Nibley, go straight over, turn right to go back as if you were going back to Severn Ridge. There's a turn that says Gatcombe, down there as you go. There's two boats still left there. And I said that I am been down because Richard's died, Raymond have died, Han have died, Three of them, all whole families were more or less wiped out and the two boats is still there. I, was going, I said to Richard, don't, don't burn them boats till I bloody finish mine, they be gone. I, I love fishing my when we we fish, but it's all day, well that is now look. You've got to have one fish, catch one fish, that's all you'll be low. Well, oh, Christ you oh. I used to go and get 20 butchers, it was like that. Botches? What's a botcher? Small fish, about four and a half pounds, three pounds, you know. The heaviest I had was 31 and a half. Uh, fish. I was half past five in the morning. Only me on the wire, nobody else. I had none of my own. Uh, so, you,
6: you, did you ever bother with elvers? Were you the elver fishing? You oh,
13: yeah, that? we used to do elver when he was at the pit at night. Ah, uh,
6: so you fit all this around the, the, the pit? You fit a lot of these things you did around the pit job?
13: That's it. Oh, aye. The pit was where I worked. I can tell you my check number, 144.
2: Henry primarily worked on stopping boats, a form of fishing that involved hanging large nets over the side of boats and reining the net in as a fish swam into it.
13: Yeah, 37 years, I expect I was fit on a stopper. A boat, three and a half ton boat. They've got two, on that, they got four grass on them down on somewhere, like that. And if you prop under here, they can, they can mousetrap that. When they put, you've got the strings on you and that. Yeah. And when the fish to pull in the string, yeah. pull on the string, you hit the prop out and it don't come You had to be on your toes. When that old tide turn and coming back at you, I mean, it was coming back that early. And you had to be in there, meaning mean, down on your lap. Sometimes I fish with the reins on me lap, mate. On your lap? Aye. Oh aye.
2: Did you get to know the tides very well on the river?
13: Oh, at I have your tide. High tides and even in tides. High water tides. High water <laughs> turns and goes back to low water. You've got your ebb, what we call the ebb. The first 27 foot tide or 25 foot, whatever it is. You've got that one. Then you've got what we call the even in tides. Yeah. You've got there. Then the next lot you've got, then you've got the tide, and then you come on down then down to the low water. You go on the low water, you can fish right till a flood the next day.
2: George Hogg was a lifelong lave net fisherman. They would work in gangs, sometimes claiming territories they would defend. Mrs. Hogg would sometimes go down to the river to help her husband.
8: Yeah, he used to take them kids down there with me, some, <clears throat> with us sometimes, you know, and it was, it was nice, because there was, um, on the bank there was, you know, you could sit, and uh, or you, we used to take sandwiches and all that, for kids and drink, you know, and they, they used to enjoy that, and of course we did sit there whilst him was fishing, and cut couple of other blokes, and um, boy, they wasn't very old
1: then.
2: Henry, sitting in the nags head, he called for me Glynn Barclay fishing with Sid and Elms. Henry recalls how Sid and also later his brother lost their lives on the unpredictable and dangerous river.
13: Yeah, and he did. He was fishing with a bugger. He <laughs> was fishing with Glynn was. Sid and Elms. Of course, I know Sid and Elms when we kept the bottom of the Farm. Uh, uh, but he, he used to always fish out behind the wreck. There's an old wreck out there. Well Sid always went out there latter end, but him to go down onto the tide. And when they dropped drop down on their boat, the four on them, I'd go down on the boat, and I'd a boat, all oh, Joe Davis, Tickle, Absol, Sid, all on them. I'd be in the boat and I'd go down and then the first two to go over from the bow and I'd hang on to the boat, not what I call the temp, down on the tump. Then I yeah. worked our way up round then. And then they would all down into Shepardy. I went to and fish out till flood.
7: Uh-huh.
13: And then come back home. Well, Sid went down fishing on his own. Well, he didn't go on his own. That was wrong. Because he went down with, along with Remy Harris, Joe Harris. Joe Harris went through the br- gutter to it, it watch him, him to come across the gutter to his wife. She was in the car and hit him. And many were never coming or running out there shouting, Sid, Sid, Sid did never come and I've never even found him. Up from that distant to this day.
6: They never found him, did
8: they'd they? Never
13: found him.
6: Yeah.
13: I reckon I picked the fish up the next day with a, a with a string on it, but they never found Sid. Sid knows him down every inch from me. But he couldn't swim a bloody six inches though. And now his brother what got drowned there in the stopper, in the boat, down on the bridge, when I was building the bridge. Well, Absol got drowned, because the bat, he was asleep, and his mate went out to have a pint. And of course the bloody tide hit and turned the bugger over, and him was trapped inside him. Couldn't get out, couldn't open the door.
2: The tides and fog made the river a treacherous place to work, and George recalls a near miss in the fog. Uh.
8: What was that bloke's name? Uh, Don Townsend? Don Townsend, yeah. No. Well, him nearly had it, wouldn't well, you? You kept oh, calling uh, to him oh, didn't oh, you? Oh, and oh, oh. now that oh, was oh, 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 oh. oh, what? Oh, saved his life, oh, I saved his life. I thought, well, he's still near his car there. Oh, I better wait, hey, better wait, all oh, others are gone. Oh, better wait, better wait, better wait, hey waited. I had to shout out in the river. It was him. And I shouted back. And he shouted again. And now he knew where he was. He took me down to the court field. And that very night he bought me chicken in the basket. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell yeah, Kept shouting, didn't you? And, and then mm-hmm. him, him swam back. Two uh, <laughs> the clothes up eh yeah. take hey. a clothes off, and the fish on his back <laughs> he was having the fish will rebound a
2: lot <laughs> overfishing of Atlantic salmon and elders saw the government and more recently the environmental agency place restrictive quotas on catches. Heritage fishing on the seven and Y was shown no exemption, and despite the fishermen's lobbying through their seven Fishermen's association. The craft of putcher fishing, lave and stopper boat fishing will soon be lost. Sheep commoning has been one of the most controversial traditions that has persisted despite serious challenges over the last 70 years. It was another means the colliers had to supplement their household income. Let's hear where it all began for the major players after the Second World War. Here is Henry again, and in the forthcoming clips, we hear a lot about haunting and hefting, a traditional method of keeping sheep in a
13: specific locality. Over to me now, is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, when I first started, I was born on Blakeney Hill, and I had a ewe and two lambs with with red fennel, and that's who, how I started off. And then I went, then the horn split up, my parents and all that, and the runner left me on my own. I went to live with. Wife's grandmother, I'll say that, because we lived together, me and her, sixty-four years, sixty-five years. We was married fifty-eight years. We started then from there, and he was working in the pit, and come home and you'd do a bit of sheep badging, and then they used to do a bit of fishing down on the Severn on the stopper bolts. And um, were you working underground or overground? Underground. 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 We was walking three and a half miles in the Princess Royal. And then we used to go down the other way, a mile, the tunnel drove into Eastern and I know drew there. We was in that head in there, driving that head in Oh, I worked in the pit. What made you pack it in? I got a on in the pit oh. and injured me back. And then I started and bought a few tat lambs and Haunted them up round the back of the cone's house this year. Yeah, earlier. Haunted them around there in the bottom of the garden. Wasn't it? Made a bit of a pen across the line. I used to go with on days, four o'clock, five o'clock, to pit. My missus would go down round Allcroft and, and get the sheep off other people's premises and take them back up into the wood.
2: Before the war, most of the commoners kept a small flock. But afterwards, there were fewer shepherds, but with larger flocks. The runs, or the places where they kept sheep, were unregulated. Here, Tommy Priest from Park End, one of the biggest post-war commoners, Describes how he started.
12: I could have been about twelve, cause how it started really. In them days, them to buy lamb tats from down Wales. Well, them to come up from down Wales, and they'd put them on the forest, and that was my job to haunt them. And when at the end of the year, they'd give me one, or they'd give me one for haunting on them.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So
12: that's so how you. That's you, how I started really. Yeah. When I was about 10 or 12, something like 11 or I did that one at a time. Yeah. Then when I started work at 14, when I started work, and I well, only got 18 shillings a week. That's six days a week then, anyway. mate. Yeah. And I did to give that to her mom, and her to give me half a crown a week pocket money. Then I sent her a dad went and bought these tats then in August, September then. I'd have four or five of them, that. Oh, you wouldn't have have them if you'd have And them took a tanner a week off me to buy <laughs> <laughs> Out of me half a crown, so I was left with two shillings. What's that? That's about 20 pence now, isn't it?
6: Yeah.
12: That's all the pocket money I had
6: yeah.
12: from yeah. when I was 14.
2: There were women too.
12: I had three sisters, and one of them was a good girl. She was
2: a good sheep badger. She was? Yes. What was her name? Gladys. Gladys? Yeah. So she she helped the sheep as well? Yeah,
12: she was a good sheep badger, yeah.
2: Did she ever run around sheep, or did she just help you and your father?
12: Just help me and her dad, yeah. Yeah. It was our dad's sheep, and we had to do what we was told. Yeah. You know, yeah.
2: Over in Ruardine, Charlie Penn began his flock thanks to Uncle Watt. All sheep had to carry the mark of the sheep commoner, often known as a badger. This practice continues today but has to be supplemented by ear tags.
6: My
5: uncle, Uncle Watt, We was up in the local pub one day, up here where the new houses built, and he said to me, he said, uh, are you gonna, no, not up here, the old pub, the pub down here, the corner pub down here. He said to me, he said, uh, Charlie, I want to put you right. And I said, what's that, Uncle Watt? He said, i got six sheep I want to sell you. He must say, you will save me time, otherwise i got to take them to market. Oh, you know how much you want for them? i go out. I said, One pound each, six pounds. I paid for the six. Yeah. That's how I started. Out on common, out on the forest. Which bit of the forest? Well, just down all, around, all the way around Woodside. That's
6: Rudy Woodside. Has, has,
5: and it was marked with a, with a pipe, an old clay pipe. And he said, Don't take the clay pipe off and put your initials on. He said, leave them as we, we don't know who's it is.
6: Huh? So, did Uncle Wack carry on keeping sheep no, then? No, no, him finished. And finished. Because he was an old man, though. Did he teach you, how did you learn to look after sheep, or did you already know that? I already farm? knowed, I already knowed. So, how
5: how big did your uh, flock get? Oh, well, 50 or 60. 50 or 60. Yeah, but I used to walk miles, looking for sheep, mate. Yeah. all the way down all the way northern, out onto the um, Cineford Green, and, Right back up, huh? without fetching them back in? That's, yeah, fetching them back up onto the, their proper
6: aunt. Yeah. Yes. Did you haunt them yourself onto that patch?
5: I did carry a bag with a, a bit of cake in and to the bag and call them and they'd come. And, and how many times a day would you go out to them? Twice, twice a day. Twice a First day. thing in the morning, last thing in the
6: evening. partly to get dark. You were, how old were you then when you started? Just gone 14.
2: I asked Tommy where his family kept their sheep. And he told me and about the impact of the Second World War on the forestry.
12: Well, it got to be kind of bottom, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. where it because we
6: Yeah.
12: Well, you would think I'd be bragging but but, but we ruled it, man.
2: Yeah. We
12: ruled it. Yeah. All the way through, man. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good grass and stuff. But the only
12: thing is what well, helped us again, you know? We was there, we had the sheep. And then the war broke.
2: Yeah.
12: And then, because the, we didn't have no fir trees in them days, mate.
2: Yeah.
12: It was all hardwood, beech and oak. Yeah. Well, they cut it all in them, cleared out all the way through, no fencing. You know, we didn't have a background.
2: So that was quite a lot of grazing then down yeah, there. Yeah, all, all the
12: way through. Well, the wetwood's a thousand acres. Yeah. Nag's Ed's a thousand acres. Yeah. Then you've got Sandy like, there's 3,000 acres over there, man. Huh? Cause me and John Thomas, we could shear out there, and we'd have three hundred sheep clicked in to shear. Yeah. I take my two boys, and him to bring his two boys, and that was a Saturday morning's job.
6: Did you think that the um, you know the the change in forestry
2: practice, you know, going for um, um, you know conifers and that, did that change? That colony? changed
12: the common in a lot. Yeah, yeah. Because where there was a conifer,s there was no, nothing to eat where the conifers killed everything.
2: The first attempt to regulate sheep commoning came in a report called the Creed Report, published in 1959, as the tensions between commoners and the Forestry Commission increased. The Forestry Commission were particularly concerned to manage enclosures, where they could protect the growth of young trees. Steve Cooper, a young forester in the 60s and early 1970s, reflects on the difficulties sheep commoning represented for him and the practical approach to managing
3: problems that many commissioned foresters took. There, there had been conflicts, as you know, historically in the dean, with the, the riots and the, that sort of thing about about enclosing land uh, between the old miners and the free-range sheep and that sort of stuff. But in the main, no, they're not, they're not. Did you have any issues with sheep commoners? Sheep commoners, yes, we did. Uh, some some of them were pretty difficult to deal with, and uh, they they would they would put sheep into an enclosure which we planted up. They would put them in over the weekend and that sort of stuff. So we did spend quite a lot of time rounding up sheep and putting them back outside the enclosures. Uh, and the and the some of the sheep buyers they do vary quite a lot, and some of them are actually quite good. And I think it was no good trying to sort of threaten them with anything because. They were quite smart operators, really. And I, I tried to work with them and work around things. And yeah, I got on quite well with them in the end.
2: The increased traffic brought problems, including collisions and scattering sheep. The road nuisance was a problem the police had to deal with in the 1960s. Here, Nigel Isaac, a young beat bobby, describes his encounter with a sheep badger.
7: We had a lot of trouble
4: with sheep on the A48. You know, they used to go down onto the and The grass always tasted better down there, for some reason. And uh, there was this one one particular guy. Um, he's dead now, but um, his sheep used to be marked with H M. So uh, found his sheep on the down there and uh, went round to have a word with him. And, uh, HM, your sheep, oh no, he said, uh, that's Her Majesty's.
7: So I said, well, if Her Majesty's sheep's there tomorrow, you're going to get booked for them. So, yeah, I mean, some
2: of them were some real characters, you know, you could have real fun with some of them. And some were some nice, but... More serious problems were on the way. The Forestry Commission were diversifying into tourism a strategy led by Reginald George Sands Baker, a controversial figure who had been appointed as deputy surveyor of the Forest of Dean in 1954, and he took up residence at the then HQ in Whitemead Park. He's referred to as the architect of the Forest of Dean becoming a forest park, and through his work, Biblim's Lodge and many other campsites, primarily for scouts and young people, were established. Bart Venner was recruited to the team developing campsites.
4: I knew I was going to get the job because Mike Dunn, the forester, was moved to Savernac Forest. And Mike and I were going out. We used to go out and I learned from him doing lectures in the evenings with slideshows. And we went down to Lydney and did one there, and we packed it all up. And Mike said, well, there you are Bart, you might as well take that with you. I said, why? He said, because you're doing the one tomorrow and uh, I started off doing the lectures and, and running the campsites and whatever all the way over the forest and we produced toilet blocks and whatever so we our deputy mayor, Reginald George Sanson Baker was very good at organising things like campsites because he saw the need to encourage people to spend
2: time under canvas. Mm-hmm. So we began to develop the campsites. But what happened to that bill to outlaw commoning in the Dean? The first reading of the Forest of Dean Act was scheduled for 22nd of November 1972. Henry Mills remembers his visits to Westminster, where the disappointed Laughlin was told that the government would have to pay off the commoners to compensate for the loss of income with regulation, and that was something with raging inflation that the government couldn't afford to do Henry Mills recalls did you have much
13: support no we had no support at all because it says in the charter is that the backlands of the forest mm. and the forest deemed to belong to the public they don't belong to the c- commission mate right? they are only in the management they told you they've yeah. been through all this years and years i'd have a bloody book from here to the door down there <laughs> of one of the things i try to do when i had to go down in meetings that was at sanson baker's that was down there sanson baker was an ed forester his photographs up in panko's there's four of them everard Moyer, they called each other they were the people that. and i was trying to get the lost name and the minister said i didn't tell you where the minister said what He said to Charles Laughlin, he said, have you got the kind of money to pay these chaps out? And therefore, he said, there's nothing we can do about it. The end of the story. We went from there then, through the big iron gates, into a room, not so big as this, huh? half as big. And that one wall was nothing but whiskey, brandy, you know, everything you wanted, and there wasn't one on us to drink. And a, all we had was tea, and then we went from there, through the iron gates, into, into the, a bloody lobby place, and was amazing, I was saying, where all the brand new whiskey and all that was there. Like said, nerd
0: Looking back on previous papers and seeing the Treasury's attitude, I don't feel inclined to fight for the bill. Comment by the Minister of State, Anthony Stoddard, to Civil Servant, 30th January 1973. I'm afraid that we have not been able to find time for the bill this session, and I doubt very much whether we should be able to do so in 1973-74. This is not to say I'm out of sympathy with the measures you would like us to take, but on the basis of decisions we inevitably have to make on priorities, I cannot as yet hold out any good hopes of a bill. Stoddart to Lachlan, 5th February 1973.
2: The accession to the EU on the 1st of January 1973 had the effect of greatly helping sheep commoning as sheep attracted significant subsidies. Sheep commoning after this point involved compromises on both sides and the establishment of a multi-agency sheep liaison group. In 2001, it was a virus that brought commoning to a halt. Foot and mouth disease was not new to commoners but whereas enclosures were used in 1967, the solution now was a cull. With the Dean badly affected, Mick Holder, Secretary to the Commons Association,
14: attended a speech house summit. We had a meeting at the speech house where, where DEFRA came to the meeting, Police, Forestry Commission, Council, National Farmers Union, the old jolly lot, and the commoners, right and they were talking about this job here and, and I mean some of the things that was fairly obvious to us as commoners wasn't perhaps quite so obvious to them as business people but I mean one of the things that was very evident see, they wouldn't know where the sheep were. That was, that was half of the battle uh, and what I was saying was look you don't know where the sheep are but I do. Um, and, and the question of that, well how does that work? Well it works like this. That's not enough not not a good enough valuation for our sheep because these sheep are of a particular breed, they're a hefted sheep they're a specific breed of sheep that live on forest waste etc and as such we want extra money so what you want. Well we want as much as we can get so we asked I can't remember what, what the figure was, but we was talking to, to the Minister and there was a, a, a mention of a hundred and fifty pounds per head. And they said if if we could if we could uh accommodate your re- your requirements financially, would you be able to accommodate our requirements to out with the clearance of the forest? So right. Here's the deal. Right, you give us what we want for our sheep and we will get the sheep and bring the sheep to your depot so you can dispose of them. Well, this all of a sudden was a godsend to the to from mine, because they're, they're faced with a situation now. They've got to put people out here in 11,000 acres of wood and trying to find the sheep. The horrific slaughter of over 6,000
2: sheep at Speech House brought sheep commoning in the dean to an abrupt end after 1,000 years. The government officials needed the commoners
14: to accomplish the cull, but the sting was in the tail. The only thing that we lost out on was there was to be a separate valuation called the hefted value of these sheep. And that was going to be paid as a separate payment now the hefted valuation worked out to be a quarter of a quarter of a million pound. That's what they owed us. And we did the sheep in the April and we were persuaded not to reintroduce any sheep to the forest until we'd got this hefted valuation because there was calculations and concerns that we're gonna take part in this re, re introducing the sheep. One of the things was going to be that every sheep that was brought back to the forest was going to be a hefted sheep and would be hefted because the commoners association would have the money, the financial wherewithal, to pay you to heft your sheep so that you would effectively replace what you'd lost with another bunch of sheep that were hefted to the same area. Now. We said, look Roger, don't go and buy any sheep, for God's sake, when, until we got this hefted valuation through, because if you do that, it'll bugger the whole job up. And that's what we stuck to. We got right through to the October time, and then the, the bloke from Dafra came to see us and he said, look lads, he said, I've got some real bad news, So what's that? He said, the minister will not pay the hefted valuation of the sheep. You, you promised about can't, you can't renege on that. And he said, well. For many of the most experienced
2: commoners, this was the end. As John Thomas from Ruspidge reflected.
6: No, no, I didn't turn back out after.
7: Well, no,
6: it was like heartbreaking really because I took all them yours to build the stock up. I knew it just like that. I think it's too busy on the roads so anyway. Today,
2: a few carry on. Some say standards have dropped, animal husbandry is poor, and sheep are a nuisance. The forest ship, like the history of iron mining at Clearwell and free mining at Hopewell, are tourist attractions. There are no pigs turned out, and no salmon caught on the Severn, but the forest ship have a huge symbolic value to many in the forest. To many it means, this land is our land. This is the last in our series of six podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed them. We will leave with the last word to Charlie Penn.
5: And our grandchild used to tell me, our granny used to tell me, the old men did come out of the pit, go down there and strap up a pint of cider till the Friday. And when it come the Friday, then I got no money to take home. So that to go and help do I and different things like that on the farm to get money to have food. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yes. Then I used to say that was a good days. <laughs> what do you think? No, you don't think so, Mike.
0: The Voices from the Forest podcast was a Voices from the Forest production for Foresters Forest. The presenter was Roger Deeks. You also heard from, in order, Emily Wood, Steve Cooper, Bart Venner, Clayton Ryder, Fred Thomas, Kelvin and Carol Jones, Gordon Brooks, Charlie Penn, Henry Mills, Mr. and Mrs. George Hogg, Nigel Isaac, Mick Holder and John Thomas. Thanks also to Caroline Prosser Lodge, Cheryl Mayo and Emily Hughes. This podcast is made possible through the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the University of Gloucestershire.